everybody uh, i'm back talking out my ass once again sorry for the long delay i probably start every one of these saying that uh it is the nature of the beast i'm a lazy bastard and i'm doing 15 different things so no matter what i'm doing i'm always not doing 14 other things which um you know you know how it is right we're all busy um, anyway, uh, if you are paying for this, stop because I've made all these free. So they used to be behind a paywall. Uh, you needed to have a premium subscription. That's no longer the case. Um, I've liberated all the previous uh, episodes. You should find them all in your RSS feed or on iTunes or wherever you uh, look at this podcast. Um, but, uh, if you don't send me an email and I, or someone else will get back to you and let you know what's happening. I was putting them up on SoundCloud for a while. Um, there are links on my site, chrisryanphd.com, go to podcast, and then you'll see the Toma drop down link there. So you should be able to find all these and they are all free. If you want to support the podcast, you can do it directly through my website, through the donation button. Uh, or through Fund What You Love. Uh, You'll see Tangentially Speaking listed there. Same podcast, same guy, same bank account. So if you want to support this, that, whatever, uh, that's how you do it. Don't give any more money to Libsyn or anybody else because, frankly, they keep half the money and what do they do? You know, I mean, they process your credit card, which, you know, I don't need to give them half your money to process the damn credit card. So that's that explains that change. When I left you last time, I was in New Delhi. <clears throat> I think uh, I was talking about the you know my the inauspicious beginning to my around the world trip where I spaced out and left all my money behind in the in the room. <laughs> Jesus, what a dumbass! Anyway, uh, I've been thinking about this next episode. A lot happens in this one, I guess, and that's one of the reasons I've delayed doing this because. It's like so many things, you know, people send me emails and the simple ones I answer right away. Uh, the ones where people actually put some some time and they send me something that's complicated or intimate or deep and meaningful. I set those aside to answer when I've got some time and when my head is clear. And the problem is that never comes, right? I, John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're making other plans. And I think that is uh, part of the problem that we all face, and, and I face it along with you. So it's completely uh, unfair and unjust because what happens is the people who really deserve the time and attention or the projects that deserve the time and attention end up not getting it because you're putting them aside for later when you're going to have more time and attention than you do now. But the problem is that it's always now. It's never later. Which is a long roundabout way of saying the reason I've been resisting this particular episode is because so much happens in it. And I don't want to forget things and I want to do it justice. Um, but uh, I think the only way to deal with this is to just forge ahead and not worry about it. There is a, a bit of a uh, a denial of death kind of situation going on for me psychologically as well because I've been carrying these stories along in my head for so long that putting them down, even, even in, in audio this way, um, feels a bit like coming to the end of a period of life that I'm resistant to. You know, it's kind of like when your kids grow up and they leave the house and, you know, you've got that emptiness syndrome or, you know, any other sort of phase of life demarcation that you start to drag your feet as you get older because you don't really want to let go. And so part of this process for me is letting go of the time of my life when I was the guy with the backpack going around doing all these adventures 
I guess I'm not that guy anymore, or that guy is somewhere within me, but, you know, there are other guys layered on top of him, guys with a beer gut who are 20 years older and, you know, different, um, a very different kind of life. So I don't know, maybe I'm resistant to giving up that part of my life and and that's part of the delay but enough excuses so i i got on that train finally amazingly i did get on the train and indian trains if you've never been on an indian train ride you can't imagine what you're missing it's it's like a city on wheels there are people up on the roof there are people sleeping in the bathrooms there are people sleeping in the aisles there are people everywhere and i had a you know I I had a reserved berth or whatever it's called on this train but everything's open it's it's like a cot that comes down and there are chains and it's just a very basic thing and you go to your berth and there are like six people sitting on it right so the first thing you learn on an Indian train is how to be part of a giant crowd and it's a crowd in which everyone is staring at you all the time you know, I just finished writing a thing uh, in this book I'm working on about how being in India helped me understand wealth um, because I was suddenly very wealthy. And I never thought of myself as wealthy, but then I got to India and I started thinking about the fact that, you know, well, like that guy in the last episode, the guy said, the money that I had left under my pillow stupidly could have bought his hotel and several others just like it buildings, businesses. And here I was, it was just a little money I'd saved up over a couple of years and I was traveling on it. That is a very, if you pay attention to it, that can be a very illuminating sort of mind fuck because suddenly I'm a millionaire, right? I'm walking around with enough money in my pocket to buy houses and not even think about it. The money I spent on my ticket to get there could have bought families out of a lifelong debt that they were going to be suffering from otherwise. So you start thinking about things, scale issues that uh, in our society, you know, millionaires are thinking about. People who, good hearted people who've got a shitload of money and they want to help. How? How do they do it? Who do they help? How do they deal with friends and family who are constantly coming to them for money? Oh, we got another business idea. Hey, oh, if you know, if you could pay the mortgage, then I'll pay you back. And and then that starts contaminating your relationships. People who win the lottery are miserable, miserable. They lose all their friends. They lose their family. They're fucking. You know, they end up in basket case. They end up with drug addictions and suicidal. They see it over and over again. There's a great This American Life episode about a guy who goes around and um, buys people's winning lottery tickets. And so he, it's complicated. I won't get into it now, but, and I don't remember the name of the episode, but if you Google This American Life lottery winners or something, I'm sure it'll come up. Um, But I remember him talking about how they are the most miserable people you'll ever meet because their lives are destroyed by this this uh, scale difference um, of money that has now disrupted their social relationships. Anyway, the point is, uh, India, the first time I was in India especially, really helped me think about those things. Being on uh, on the street or in the on the train in India has a similar effect in terms of fame. You get an idea of what it's like to have people staring at you constantly or great beauty. Um, you know, what it must be like to be Angelina Jolie or, you know, some fashion model where every time you walk down the street, everybody's looking at you all the time. Yeah, okay, there's a little feeling of power there, but there might be 5% power and 95% complete fucking pain in the ass. You can't scratch your ass without, you know, half the fucking train noticing. That was really hard to get used to in India. And and this was early days in my trip in India, too. So I wasn't used to anything. That train ride was crazy. Um, at some point, and it was a very long train ride. I remember it goes through. It's from New Delhi to Jammu, Kashmir. I think it's a joint 
Jammu and Kashmir is where it was, but it went through the Punjab. So I think it was a, a day or two days or something. I don't remember. Anyway, at some point on this trip, I met an English guy who was a little older than me. He was probably in his mid twenties and I was, yeah, about the same age as me actually. Um, but he had just finished medical school. His name was Chris and he was doing a trip after medical school before going home to work. And then I had also met a German guy, George, George, the German. I remember that he was a truck driver and the three of us sort of bonded together and I think we took the bus together from Jammu and Kashmir, Jammu, which is the capital uh, city where the train stops. Then you take a bus to Srinagar, which is this amazing city up in, in Kashmir. And the three of us took the bus together. And I don't know if I mentioned in an earlier episode, but uh, the last minute back when I was packing for this trip in my parents' basement in Pennsylvania, I remember I had my backpack, you know, all loaded up and I sort of looked at everything and decided I wanted to lighten the load. And I did not, you know, take off the 12 pound tent or the sleeping bag that I would never use or the water filter that I wouldn't use because I wasn't camping by a fucking river in India. I'd be drinking bottled water all the time, which is everywhere, but I didn't know that. Um, no, instead, what I decided to lose were my cassettes. I had 10 cassettes and a Walkman cassette player. I decided I wouldn't need those because I would listen to Indian music and learn to love it, which did not happen. So uh, within a couple of weeks, I was losing my mind because I had no Western music to listen to. And on that bus with George and Chris, we were taking, we were going up through the, the Himalayas up to Srinagar, a very winding, long, crazy bus ride. And Chris lent me his Walkman and he only had one cassette that I knew and I listened to it over and over again. Well, we know where we're going but we don't know where we've been and we know what we're knowing but we can't say what we've seen and we're not little children What we want and the future is certain Give us time to work it out That's right. Little Creatures, Talking Heads. Every time I hear any song from that album, I am immediately transported to the most unlikely place, which is Kashmir, India, 1980-something, seven maybe, something like that. Not sure when that record came out, uh, but that's where I was. Aside from Little Creatures, the one thing I remember from that bus ride going up to Srinagar is it, it was very long. I remember that, you know, it's if you've traveled in, in the so-called third world, you've experienced this too, the the bus rides are insane for some reason the drivers i guess they get paid by the trip so they want to go as fast as possible get their money go home whatever they take a lot of amphetamines they're speed freaks and they drive like maniacs uh i can't believe i survived all the third world bus rides i've been on but you know they're passing on blind cur curves they're you know, going crazy, screeching the tires, going around curves, and you, you look over the edge, and it's a, you know, 200-foot drop straight off the edge, and there are no guardrails or anything that's going to protect you. That's one of the things that's most interesting about traveling in, in places like that is, like, if you die, you die. You know, there's no helicopter that's going to fly in and rescue you and save this and that. No, no, it's it's raw. It's you're either You either make the turn or you don't. And if you don't, you're done. That's it. It's simple. 
And that sounds brutal and it sounds terrible and difficult and scary and all that. But it's also very liberating because when you're worried about whether or not you're going to survive this bus ride, then you don't worry about whether or not you're going to get cancer in 20 years um, you know, or or whether your girlfriend loves you as much as she should, or whatever the fuck else it is that we worry about, it there's a focusing of attention on the here and now that is, um, you know, you do it reluctantly, but when you've done it, it feels really good afterwards. You know, like people who parachute or rock climb or scuba dive or all these things that we do that are scary and seemingly dangerous sometimes they actually are dangerous sometimes it just feels dangerous but in any case the reason it feels so good i believe is that it focuses the mind to the point where it turns off all the little bullshit voices that we have convincing us that there's so much to be worried about when what's really happening is we're just repeating over and over again the realization i am going to die i'm going to die i am mortal i am vulnerable i am afraid and so that takes so many different forms in our consciousness and freaks us out in so many different ways but it's ultimately it's the same fucking thing over and over again and so when you're doing something that focuses the mind on the here and now and uh, eliminates those abstractions it actually feels really good because you feel really alive because you weren't sure you would be a few minutes ago to that end the only other thing i really remember from that bus ride is i'm listening to talking heads i've got my head leaning against the window because it's just been hour after hour and i'm half asleep half awake my head's leaning against the window, my eyes are open, and I'm just sort of watching the road go by. And it's just flashing by quickly, you know, road, road, rocks, road, road, uh, bridge, go over bridge, boom, chasm, back on the road, da, da, da. goats, a guy with goats, 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 road, 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 bicycle, bike, little, little roadside stand, whatever. And then flash to another chasm, we're going over a bridge, and I look down, and suddenly I see couple hundred feet below the mangled remains of a bus just like the one I'm on and maybe a dozen bodies laid out in a row wrapped in white sheet happened in an instant it was like a flash photo just boom and then back to road 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 goats well about road road did I just see that too late to turn back, too late to see anything, too late to confirm. But I'm sure I saw a bus that had probably crashed earlier that day, maybe yesterday, just went right off the fucking edge. So when I say you're living close to the edge, you're definitely living close to the edge when you do that. And again, this was in the, this was like 1986, 87, something like that. And I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are much younger than me. So you don't know what it was like, but there was no fucking internet. There were no cell phones. Um, I think I described in an earlier podcast how long it took to send a letter. It took a month for a letter to get back home to the U.S. and then another month for the answer to reach me in India. So we're looking at a two-month there and back for a for an airmail letter. Um. I had a little shortwave radio with me um, with, you know, a telescopic antenna. And I would turn that on at night and BBC News, BBC News. And they were talking about cricket scores or something. But just the fact that it was in English made me feel closer to my people, my home, even though it was British English when I'd never been in Britain at that point. But that's how far away it was and i don't think you can get that far away now unless you're you know you're going up the amazon or you're you know hiking into outer mongolia or something but if you're you know i don't think you can get that far away on buses or trains i think you know you need you need to really uh make a serious effort to get that out of contact with the modern world but you know in the 80s in the mid 80s before the the internet that's what it was like so chris and george and i get to srinagar 
Srinagar is is a small city built on this lake, Dal Lake, I think it's called. And it was a place where the British went during the summers. Uh, you know, the British um, controlled India until the 40s, just after World War II and Gandhi and all that. Um, so during the British colonial period, it's so fucking hot in, in Delhi, especially in the summer, that they had these mountain retreats that they would go to. I think Manali was one and uh, Srinagar was the other. So there, the wealthy British colonialists would go up to this lake and there were these houseboats that they lived on. And the houseboats are still there. And you could rent them as a tourist. I, I don't think you can go to Srinagar now. There was a, after I was there, the, the sort of Muslim Hindu conflict really flared up and, and it's occupied by the military and, and travelers were killed and there were, you know, all sorts of terrible shit happened. Um, but at the time that I was there, you could go up there and rent these houseboats and some of them are spectacular. They're really beautiful because they, they're all hand-carved. There's all this hand-carved wood everywhere. And they still have the British um, uh, silverware and plates and, and cups and china and, you know, cut crystal wine glasses and all this stuff that was left behind by these British aristocrats. So you can sort of insert yourself into 1930s British upper crust, you know, Indian colonialist life there. We opted not to rent that sort of houseboat. We wanted to stay on a houseboat, but um, we were, you know, all backpacker travelers. So we were looking for the cheapest option. And so we found this, somebody took us to one that was, instead of being like a floating Mansion, which a lot of these things were, this was more like a floating hunting cabin. It was very basic. It, it was a boat, but very basic, very sort of low rent, <laughs> low budget. It had a pot-bellied stove in the living room, a table, you know, like a table to sit around, and uh, and then had a couple of bedrooms. And that was it. Um so we rented that and we stayed there for I don't know how long we were there maybe maybe 2 weeks. And now here are some things. It's cold, okay? This was in November. So it's cold as hell. I did use my sleeping bag actually. I I misspoke earlier. I used my sleeping bag there. Yeah, I used it a lot there. I was very grateful for it there. Um, so we would build fires in the in the pot-bellied stove at night, and we sat around playing cards and talking and getting to know these guys. Turned out that George, the truck driver, the German truck driver, he had um, made his money to come on this trip by smuggling hash from Morocco. He drove um, the trucks from Morocco, and he secreted you know, bricks of hash somewhere in the truck and drove it up to Germany and sold it and made a bunch of money. So that was how he got there. And then Chris, of course, was a goody-goody medical student. Um, uh, out, you know, I guess his family had been in England or, or in India or something. But a, a lot of British kids wanted to go to India because of the connection, the cultural connection. So it was an interesting crew. You know, George was a very nice guy, um, but like uneducated truck driver, hash smuggler. And then there was Chris, this fancy upper class British doctor. And then there was me, whatever the hell I was. I don't know how they saw me, but that was the three of us. And so we, you sit on these houseboats and the way it works is it's sort of like the stores come to you. There are these little boats, which are like dugout canoes, sort of um, varying size and, and fanciness. And they sort of come around, they paddle them around and sell stuff off them. So there will be like the vegetable one, all full of carrots and cauliflower and potatoes and stuff piled up. You know, he'll come paddling along in the morning and, you know, people come out and buy stuff. So it's a floating market that comes by the houseboats. And then there will be one that will come by with goat meat and whatever. And so there are all these different shikaras, I think they were called, um, coming by with the different things. And then I remember one comes by. We weren't buying it. The guy who owned the house would buy stuff. He They made food for us. 
and when we asked for it and then we go into town and eat in there as well and there were like little taxi shikaras in fact i took a pic- picture of a kid um on one of those and i'll i'll put that up on my website I, i'm sure i still have that digitized somewhere although i was shooting on film obviously back then but uh so the this one shikara came by that really i stuck in my memory because the other ones are all full of stuff full of the vegetables and the meat and all this kind of chaos this one comes by it was very fancy very beautiful boat and it just had the guy paddling it from the back and then in the front it had a small wooden case and on top of the case was brass scale old style scale with the two two plates like the scales of justice kind of thing and as he paddled that would sort of rock a little bit he was the guy selling hash now hash there's no alcohol here because it's a muslim area so no beers no wine but hash was legal so a lot of hash around and no weed no no grass just hash so we bought some hash but then we didn't know how to smoke it because we didn't have pipes we didn't have a bong i was a bong smoker back in the day and uh you know so the first thing we did was we rigged a little uh, paper clip uh you know and smoked it under um under a glass so you'd sort of stick it on the end of the paper clip bend up the paper clip so it was off the table light it up blow it out so it smoked and then you put a glass over it and then sort of tip the glass up and you smoke the cloud out of that um but that got to be problematic i think one of the guys not me and maybe it was chris the german actually sucked the burning chunk of hash into his mouth and burned his tongue so we had to stop doing that then i came up with this idea because someone had taught me how to make a like a a pyramid out of a big piece of paper so we got a newspaper and i made this pyramid and then we ripped the top off so we would do the same thing with the hash put it on the paper clip and uh light it up and then we put this big newspaper pyramid over it and the smoke would come up through the hole in the top so it was you know everything looks cool when you're stoned but it kind of it looked like a smoking volcano and we would sort of you know lean over and suck the smoke out of this volcano as well the record's called uh, Sacred System I think Uh, Black Lotus is the song, maybe I've got it backwards maybe it's Black Lotus and the song's called Sacred System or the group, I don't know 
Google, Sacred System, Black Lotus, Bill Laswell, L-A-S-W-E-L-L. I'll play some more of his music later. I love him. He's great. Very atmospheric. Anyway, the so we were smoking the volcano. <clears throat> Every night we smoked the volcano. And things I remember about Srinagar. Beautiful lake, beautiful reflections, beautiful mountains. Whew, the Himalayas all around. But it was cold, so we weren't doing much hiking. Uh, we were just sort of hanging in the town, hanging on the boat. Very cold at night. And huddling around the pot-bellied stove. Like I said, it felt like a hunting cabin. And um, I remember men wore these big sort of blankets around. They would sort of wrap them around their waist. They had jackets on top, and then they wore these big blankets. And they walked funny. They walked like with their their feet pretty far apart. And I, I didn't really know why they were walking funny. They walked like guys who've been on horses too long. You know, their sort of legs open. And then I was in a shop or something and I saw a guy come into the shop and take the blanket off and they had like he had a chain around his waist and a metal rod hanging from the chain and at the end of the rod down between his ankles was a small metal bucket that had hot coals in it. And so that's why they walked with their legs open because they were carrying these little little mini barbecues between their legs. And the heat was coming up from this little barbecue and warming their bodies. Really, really clever. I mean, I guess it gets fucking cold there in the winter. So you come up with stuff like that. But I thought that was a really interesting idea. So everybody's walking around, men anyway, with these, uh, these little mini barbecues hanging between their legs. I wonder what that does for their sperm count. Can't be good. Anyway, one night we're hanging out in the in our hunting or floating hunting cabin. And it's late and we're stoned, really stoned. And I think we were playing cards, you know. Played a lot of cards traveling because you end up, you know, sitting in little shitty rooms somewhere with nothing to do a lot. And suddenly we hear all this screaming. And the owner of the house, uh, of the boat, who lived on a boat right next door, comes running through our uh, living room, yelling stuff. We didn't really understand what he was yelling. And then one of his sons came through right after him. And they were like, come on, come on, we have to go. And we well, go where? What? Yeah, come on, come on, we have to go. So we just sort of jumped up and threw on a jacket and ran out with following them, like not knowing what the emergency is. And we see across the lake a fire uh, burning. Uh, uh, this big fucking fire, like a two-story house, is on fire right across the lake. And he he gets us in the in a shikara and. And apparently we're going to help them fight this fire. And, and in that instant of confusion and Chris, the, the British medical student says, oh, I forgot something in the cabin. And he jumps up and runs into the cabin. And we wait a, a 30 seconds, something, a minute. And then they just say, oh, no, we have to go. And they then they paddle off. Now, of course, Chris didn't forget anything in the cabin. He just cased out this situation. He's like, fuck it. I'm not going out on this freezing cold lake in the middle of the night with all these screaming people into this chaos i'm gonna die out there well of course it didn't occur to george the german and me uh that that's what was happening until we were already halfway across the lake uh in this very um unstable dugout canoe type thing that we weren't accustomed to being in so the whole thing is shaking and then you know everybody's yelling and so Meanwhile, they paddle across the lake and we get there and there are, I don't know, a hundred people screaming, yelling and all these guys. And it's a two story wooden house burning. And it's like, look, forget it. It's it's at the point where it's gone. Right. There's no way you're going to say put out this fire. So but they're still they're fighting it because now it's about who stands up who who tried to save it who's a hero who owes whom a favor whatever 
um, and people are doing crazy shit. And so they've got a bucket line coming from the lake up to a, a couple of guys who are like on the roof of the house next to it. And they're throwing these buckets of water one at a time onto this raging inferno. And at this point, it becomes clear that the owner of our houseboat has no intention of getting into this mess. And we're just going to sit at a safe distance and watch this all happen, which was a great relief to me, I have to tell you. There were other guys in Shikaras up closer to the fire, actually splashing at it with their paddles. I don't know if there were people in the house. I, I don't know if anyone died in this. I, I, I have no idea. But um, I do know that after about half an hour of watching this crazy, futile heroism, finally uh, a little boat came up, a power boat that was the fire boat, the fire engine, you know. And I remember... It was called the Tiger Lily, <clears throat> which happened to be the name of my dog when I was a kid. Uh, so that really stuck in my memory. And by the time the Tiger Lily arrived, you know, come on, there there was nothing. Um, and then they couldn't get the pump started, and there was a lot of yelling and screaming and chaos, and, and I don't think they ever got the pump started. But that... Uh, so then we, you know, I don't know if it was an hour or two hours or what, then we paddled back uh, to the houseboat and and told Chris what we'd seen. And I, I, I hope he regretted his, uh, his, his fucking chicken-ass move of, of backing out. But, hey, if I had thought of it, if I'd really assessed the situation, I probably would have opted not to go either. But uh, in any case, we did go, and... This led to another interesting experience because we had shown up. Uh, we were now invited to a wedding. We were sort of, they, you know, we were cool, I guess. So uh, we got invited to this wedding, which was uh, one of the stranger parties I've ever been to. It was um, a wedding of... I believe it was a family from Pakistan uh, being married to a, pa a family from Kashmir. Now, I won't go into the whole sordid history of this, but Kashmir is really only a part of India um, because the son of the Maharaja of Kashmir at the time of the separation when the British left uh, the subcontinent owed a lot of money to casinos in Europe. And the British wanted uh, Kashmir to be part of India and not part of Pakistan, which it should have naturally been because it's a predominantly Muslim population. And during the, um, the when the British left India, all hell broke loose and, and Muslims and Hindus were killing each other. And you ended up with um, the what had been one entity now broken up into India and East and West Pakistan. East Pakistan later became Bangladesh um, and millions of people were fleeing India, millions of Muslim people fleeing India into the area that's now called Pakistan and, and Hindu people fleeing south, everyone losing their land, their property, complete bloody, literally bloody chaos. And Kashmir should have been part of Pakistan, but it had strategic uh, value because it's on the border with China and it's way up there and there are all sorts of mineral issues. And um, so India really wanted it. And so what the British did was they said to this Maharaja, if you sign the paper making uh, Kashmir part of India rather than Pakistan, we'll pay off your son's gambling debts. And so, uh, to my understanding, that's why Kashmir is part of India, and this war has been going on for ever since. So, the the families were one one family was on the Indian side of the border, the other family was on the Pakistani border, and uh, other Pakistani side of the border, and they were having this wedding in Srinagar, and we got invited somehow. I don't know how, and I remember. Going into the room, of course, the women and the men were completely separate. 
And I remember going into the room, and I think it was just George the German and me. I think Chris, the chicken shit who didn't go to the fire, wasn't invited. But I remember going into this room, and there were like maybe 50 bearded dudes um, who you've seen in news reports of the Taliban. They, they look like Taliban. They have those Afghani hats on or similar, you know, mountain um, hats. Uh, same kind of outfit, same kind of big beard, same kind of fierce eyes. And interestingly, the same uh, AK-47s leaning up against the wall. So now again, this is the mid 80s. And so they were fighting the Soviets at that point, being funded by the Americans. So maybe that's why we were invited, because I was American. I don't know. In any case, we go, you know, it was a very awkward and weird evening because you go into this room, everybody's just sitting, these men are just sitting against the wall. A couple of them might have been talking to each other, but I don't remember any real conversation happening. Nobody spoke English. And we just sort of sat there. And everyone looked at us, and it was very awkward and weird, and we didn't know why we were there. I'm sure they didn't know why we were there. But it was an honor, so we went. (laughs) It's the thing about honors. They're often very uncomfortable. That's from a, another Bill Laswell tune called Goodfella, G-U-D, Fella, F-E-L-L-A. And it's from an album called Illuminated Audio. Definitely love that stuff. So we are back on the houseboat now. And we're going to leave town. We're going to go to Ladakh, which is up in Leh, which is the highest city in the world. And the people who live there are Tibetans. Um, there's a great book about that region that I've been looking at recently, actually, is research for Civilized to Death. It's called Ancient Futures. And um, it makes me wish that uh, what I'm about to tell you hadn't worked out this way. Um, we, dis- we bought tickets to go up to Leh, which I think was about a 20-hour bus ride through the Himalayas. Now, remember, this is mid to late November, and it's already cold down in Srinagar, and we're headed straight up. And uh, the tickets were $4, $5, something like that. And the bus left really early in the morning. So we set our alarms, got in our sleeping bags, set our alarms, Alarms go off at five in the morning. It's dark. It's really cold. See your breath. And okay, we got to get up and get go to the bus. And Chris, again, the doctor, he says, hey, guys, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do this. Uh, I don't feel well. I think I've got a cold coming on. It's not a day to be on the bus for 20 hours. 
you guys go ahead. I'll meet you up there, but I'm not going to go. I'll buy another ticket for tomorrow. And Now, I'm an easy guy to convince not to get out of bed, <clears throat> especially if it's freezing cold and it's 5 o'clock in the morning and I'm in a warm sleeping bag. So I say, you know what? I'm not going to go either. If you're not going, that's cool. We'll go tomorrow. It's 4 bucks. Who cares? Whatever. We'll buy another ticket. George, okay, fine. We'll go back to sleep. Then we get up later and we're talking about it. And, you know, it's late in the season. We might get stranded up there, which means we'd have to fly out, which would be expensive because once the snows come, the roads close. And the roads were still open. Buses were still leaving. Trucks, they they traveled in convoys. And convoys were still leaving. But, you know, who knows if we'd have time to go up and hang out and check it out and then come back down and... And so we talked about it during the day and we decided, you know what, it's not a good time to do this. Let's just go down to New Delhi and, you know, and travel elsewhere. So um, we ended up taking the bus down to Jammu, back down another, you know, it was like a 10 hour ride or whatever. And then we're in Jammu and we're trying to get on the train to go to New Delhi. And one of the things that's very frustrating about India is the bureaucracy. There is bureaucracy everywhere. So we went to buy the try to buy the train ticket and they said, oh, you need a special stamp because it's going through Punjab. And at that point, Punjab was a restricted area. So we needed a stamp. I thought the stamp that I got coming up was enough to go back down. But no, you need another stamp. So you need to go to this other office that's across town. So we go to this other office across town. That's closed for lunch. Then they finally come back from lunch, and then they say, "Oh no, you need to get uh, you know you need to get a special stamp from the train to put you in this special car, and then you bring that back here, and then we do this, and then we do that, and then we're going back, and we're coming back, and we're going back, and it's just fucking impossible." And it starts to feel like, well, they don't want us on this train. We're sort of being forced, you know, no one will tell us this, but it's just they're giving us such a runaround that nobody want they don't want us on the train for some reason. And in the midst of all this back and forth, we see a sign at a travel agency, this big sign. It's a picture of this fancy bus and it says Deluxe Video Coach Express to New Delhi. So we go in there. How much is the deluxe video coach? Oh, the deluxe video coach is three, four, or five times as much as the train, but it's direct. It goes straight to Delhi. No stops, no bullshit, no running around. It's reclining seats. It's air conditioning. It's super wonderful. So <clears throat> we're so frustrated at this point. And here's the thing about being a Westerner traveling in, in India. Uh, you can buy your way out of shit. Again, it's like being rich, right? It, it Things get too much and you just, fuck it, I'll pay. Get me out of this, right? So all of us decide, look, let's we're going to pay. So we'll pay, okay, whatever. So instead of paying, you know, $7 for the train, we're going to pay $20 for the deluxe video coach, which is a lot of money when you're backpacking around the world. But fuck it, okay. So we're going to buy our way out of this. And then, so we bought our tickets, and then we went and the the bus leaves in three hours or something. So then we went to a a hotel and in hotels, sometimes they have alcohol. And so we went to this hotel and we bought some very overpriced, very bad Indian beer. And we sat there and we drank our beer and we said, okay, our problems are over. We're on the deluxe video coach. Now we get to relax. So then a couple hours later, we go to the train station and they're boarding the deluxe video coach and we get on and, oh, your seats are back there. And we walk to the back. We're in the last row. Well, it turns out that the last row of this fucking deluxe video coach does not have reclining seats. In fact, what it has is cheap carpet over plywood box, basically shelf over the motor. And so everybody on the seat has reclining seats except us. We're sitting on this fucking bench in the back of the bus, the three of us. And the people in front of us recline their seats. And I've got this woman's head right in front of my face. Like like I could stick out my tongue and lick her head. That's how close it is. 
And as if that's not, and banging on my knees, because buses, everything is made for the average Indian, which is smaller than any of us. So our knees are, and these people aren't going to like not recline their seats because they're rich Indians and rich people in poor countries are the biggest assholes ever because they are so accustomed to not giving a fuck, which is what you need to do to be a rich person in a poor country. You need to learn to not give a fuck. And there's a whole section of the book I'm writing about this. I call it rich asshole syndrome. Anyway, so these people are reclined right into our faces. And to make matters worse, the deluxe deluxe video coach is showing Hindi films all night. And Hindi films are pretty fucking crazy. If you haven't seen them, there's a lot of yelling and screaming and singing and dancing and rainstorms and rapists and all sorts of crazy shit and the speaker at the front of the bus there are two speakers one in the front one in the back the speaker in the front is broken so they've got the thing turned up full blast so that the people in the front can hear the crazy shit that's coming out of this cheap speaker in the back of the bus right over our heads and this is going to be a 12 hour ride or more I don't remember but a long a long fucking ride I've got cigarettes, cigarette filters stuffed into my ears to try to block out the noise. The seat we're on is hot because we're right over the engine and it vibrates constantly. We've got the reclined seats into our knees. We've got the greasy heads right in front of our faces. This is horrible. And I have to tell you, this is the closest I ever came probably ever traveling, but certainly in India, it's the closest I ever came to just completely losing my shit. I don't know how that would have manifested. I don't know if I would have started hitting people in the head. I don't know if I would have cried. I I don't know. But I remember feeling uh, that I was very close to some sort of a breaking point. And... A few hours into the trip, the bus stops. We're in the middle of nowhere. It's the middle of the night. We're in a parking lot, essentially. And there's a guy with a chai stall and a gas lantern. And everybody gets off the bus, stretch your legs, get some chai. parking lot rabid dogs wandering around just out of the light cast by this chai wallas gas lantern drinking sweet chai and I said to people start getting back on the bus and I said to George the German and Chris the English medical student dudes I can't get back on that bus and they looked at me and they said, what are, you, what are you talking about? You have to get on the bus. I said, I can't. I can't. I can't get on that fucking bus. Well, what are you going to do? You can't stay here? I said, all right, well, just, if anyone asks where I am, just say, it doesn't matter. Just just go. It doesn't matter. Just leave. Just tell them to go. I'll be fine. Dude, you can't do that. I'm going to be fine. I'll be all right. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm going to get up on the roof. What? 
you can't get up on the, yeah, I'm going to get up on the luggage rack. There's a, the luggage is all up on the roof of the bus. You're crazy, man. Okay, I don't care. I can't get on the bus. So everybody in the confusion, everybody's getting back on the bus. I slip around the back. There's a ladder up the back. I quietly crawl up the ladder. And up there, all the back, all the stuff, all the backpacks and the suitcases and all that stuff. I find my backpack. I unzip it. And I've got my Thermarest air mattress, self-inflating. I take it out. I blow it up. Nobody sees me. I clear a little space between the suitcases. I lay my Thermarest air mattress down, pull out my sleeping bag. Now the bus is starting to rumble and he started up the engine. Apparently, no problem that I'm not there. Nobody gives a shit. As I say, in those places, you know, whatever. You're not there. You miss the bus. You miss the fucking bus. Whatever. Nobody's worried about it. You're not going to sue anybody. You're not going to call the cops. Nobody gives a shit. Things are as they are. And I'm on the roof. And so I pull out my sleeping bag. I lie this thing down. I set everything up. I pull myself into the sleeping bag. The bus is pulling out of the parking lot. I'm lying down. I know I'm safe because I'm in the same place where all these suitcases are. So there's no phone lines or tree branches that are going to hit me as long as I keep my head below where the suitcases are, horizontal. And I lie there in my warm sleeping bag on my Thermarest air mattress nestled among the suitcases for the rest of that night looking at the stars over India in complete and utter comfort. The next morning we pull into Delhi and I uh, carefully get myself out of the sleeping bag, get everything packed up as we're going through the city, make sure no branches or cables take my head off. And we pull into the bus station and I've got my backpack and I'm down the ladder before anybody knows anything. And Chris and George come out of the bus and look at me and I'm fresh and happy and rested and relaxed. And (laughs) I win. I won. And then later in that trip in India, I paid a tip to the drivers to let me ride on the rooftop. I rode rooftops on buses all through Rajasthan, which is desert. So it's much easier. You don't have to worry about trees and stuff. You can see anything coming. And it was one of the best things I learned to do on that trip was to pay a little backsheesh to the driver. Let me ride up there. Indian people all thought I was crazy because the comfortable civilized place to be is in the bus, right? The only people who ride on the rooftops are the dirt poor people who can't afford to get a seat on the bus. So for them to see a foreigner who's got more money than anyone actually paying to ride on the roof was mind-blowingly weird. And it also blew the minds of the people by the side of the road because they'd see the bus come and they'd see this white dude with orange hair sitting up on the roof of the bus and they just thought that was hilarious. So I got smiles and waves and kids and women and everybody was just so happy and amused to see me up there on the bus. In fact, I remember I was with my buddy Sean and we cuz I taught him this thing and he loved it so we did it together. We were leaving Jaipur, I think. And we were up on the roof and we'd helped like, you know, everybody thought it was hilarious, the two Westerners up there. And we'd help people like pass their banana baskets and whatever they had to store up there. And then the the poor people would come up there with us. And so we would just sort of participate in everything. And as we were pulling out of the bus station, I uh, was unlocking my I had a master combination lock on my backpack and I was unlocking it because I wanted to pull out my air mattress and all this and as the bus is pulling out of the parking lot of the bus station I'm fiddling with the lock and it slipped out of my hand and it fell off the back of the bus and the bus is going and there's no way to stop it or get it whatever it's gone right which is kind of a hassle because that lock was really useful because you stay in a guest house or whatever you got your own lock you can lock your door and it's a combination you don't need a key you don't need to remember whatever but it doesn't matter so 
um, we pull out of the bus station, but then the bus kept stopping uh, all around uh, Jaipur to pick up more people and add more stuff to the roof, you know, more bananas and mangoes and, and papayas and all the stuff that they were transporting. And so seven or eight stops later, we're completely on the other part of the city. And this is a big city. Um, and we're helping load up the stuff. And this old man rides on a bicycle, comes into the, the station, comes up to the back. And he gets off his bike and he's got my lock in his hand. He's been following this bus all through the city trying to catch up. This guy had to be in his 60s. And he's got my lock. Now, I always carried like the day's money in my front pocket and the rest of the money in my money belt. So I reached into my pocket and pulled out whatever I had. It was probably $5 or something. And he he's handing the lock up to me. And I, thank you, thank you. And I reached down and get the lock and I hand him the money and he won't take the money. No, 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 no. Refused to take the money. Just smiled at me. Gave me a little namaste look. Nodded his head. Got back on his bike and rode away. It's a moment I'll never forget. Anyway back to New Delhi uh, the morning we, we roll in and uh, we get a room I don't know if it was at the same place where I had spaced out and left my money before I don't remember maybe I was too ashamed to show my face there again but same neighborhood old Delhi near the train station and I remember going to take a shower so this was I don't know two three days after we had left Srinagar and I went to a little cafe and there was an English language newspaper and on the front page was a story about the avalanche of a couple of days before that had taken buses and trucks off the road, swept them off the road and left people stranded for a few days before the army could fly in and start to fly out bodies and and bring in blankets and food and so on. Lots of people had lost limbs to frostbite. Lots of people had died immediately in the avalanche when the buses and trucks got swept off the road. And the road, of course, was the road between Srinagar and Ladakh. And the bus that we had tickets on was part of the convoy that got swept off the road in the avalanche. 